Welcome to the Business of Psychology podcast, the show that helps you to reach more people, help more people, and build the life you want to live by doing more than therapy. Hello, everybody. So hopefully we are coming live um, into the Do Modern Therapy community um, and the Do Modern Therapy members group. And today I have Michaela Thomas with me. Yay. Welcome, Michaela. Thank you very much. <laughs> I'm very pleased to be here. So Michaela is actually here. I'm not sure if she knows this, but I have had loads of requests since our podcast episode, Michaela, um, for a follow up with you because people have been asking me over and over again, how on earth does she do it? (laughs) Um, Because you've achieved so much in your practice and you really seem to have a good work-life balance, uh, dare I use that term, (laughs) um, as well. So I feel like there's a lot that we can all learn from you. And I'm personally really interested to dive in to the specifics, really, of how you kind of deal with perfectionism, which I know you help people with and also struggle with, um, imposter syndrome, and making the space, really, to do some of the amazing things that you do, especially your book, um, which is really exciting. Thank you. So if it's all right with you, let's start on a personal note. Um, I know that it's really common sometimes when you see somebody as successful as Michaela, who seems to have it all sorted, to kind of think that they're different from you. I know my personal imposter syndrome um, is very guilty of telling me that quite often. Like, oh, it's all right for her. She's got it sorted because she's different to me. Um, so actually, I think it's really important that we kind of get out there on the table from the beginning that fundamentally, you're probably not that different. Um, so can you tell us a bit about your struggles with perfectionism? Sure. Uh, and I think that's it's an ongoing journey for a lot of us. And I think the two of the most common schemas we kind of think about psychologists having is a sense of self-sacrifice and and perfectionism. I mean, it's there's no surprise that I have quite a lot of clinical psychologists in my own Facebook group for Pause Purpose Play because that's you know the same name as my podcast. Is it's what I'm really passionate about is helping people find more ways of calming down and unwinding and pausing because I've had to struggle that with that myself. You know, it's, it's been really difficult for me to give myself the permission to slow down and finding different ways of pausing that felt more palatable to me. So it's come from kind of an uh, ongoing journey for myself um, through compassion-focused therapy and compassion mind training to, to really think about what kind of life is going to be meaningful and valuable for me. So that's kind of flirting with the act side of things as well. So I don't think that it's, I mean, I don't sort of say that to openly to my clients that I am a perfectionist and I don't think I am anymore. I think I've done enough work for this to be much more functional. So we really want to think about the difference between when you are striving for excellence and doing well versus when you're striving for perfectionism, which is unattainable. So I do think that I strive to do a good job. I think that I have a high work ethic. I think I want to do well in my support of clients. And that's that does mean that I self-reflect and self-correct. So say if I've had a correspondence with a client and they've been upset, either I might say, what could I have done differently? How could I have responded to them? Is there anything left for me to learn here? And that's very different to where we get caught up in perfectionism, where you feel I've failed, I'm a bad person, I'm a bad psychologist, I'm no good at this. And that's the kind of the big learning journey for me has been sort of going from the self-critical to the self-corrective with kind of 
learning a lot more about how we soften and soothe that inner critic so they can continue to serve us and protect us, but no longer trip us up and make us feel like shit, essentially. So that's been a huge part of me as a psychologist that I have to practice what I preach. I have to take on board the strategies that I show to people on a daily basis. That's such a useful distinction, the difference between self-criticism and self-correction. Because I think a lot of the time there's a real fear of letting go of perfectionism. Because what would I become? Because I think quite rightly, we often recognise that that drive, that perfectionist drive, has actually helped us to achieve an awful lot. Um, Mm. And I'm not surprised either that it comes up a lot for psychologists um particularly because the pipeline to become a psychologist is Mm. so brutal and so long and I think you often feel like you're just getting things wrong all the time you just need to work harder and harder and harder um so how did you square that in your own head how did you become uh get that perspective really I think it's firstly it's helped that I didn't train in the UK so I haven't been subject to quite the same gruesome route into clinical psychology. We have a very different bottleneck in in Sweden. It's way harder to get in uh, to begin with but once you're into the program you then spend uh, six years training so there's not like you first do assistant psychology and then maybe do a master's or go into IAPT and and then you get into the particular psych. It's not like that you sort of know uh, that when you come into your undergrad version of it sort of the first three years of theoretical psychology you know that you're going to come out the other end with the uh, with the full kind of clinical training so it's a different bottleneck but I was the youngest to get into the program I was 19 when I got in um, in Sweden you have to work for a year before you're allowed to apply so you have to have 12 months working experience before you're even allowed to apply to clinical psychology and you know there were people in my cohort who were say upwards to 45 and everything in between so I feel like I had to face that from very early on, you know, that I was driven, that I had aspirations, I knew where I wanted my ambition to take me. And that's been hard. And it's been so having to learn from people with more living life experience and kind of wisdom that actually trying to take that on board when I was there as a 19 year old thinking I wanted to conquer the world. So I've, I've softened a lot. I mean, I'm twice that age now almost. So that means that I've been in psychology for half my life. And I use that as a way to think about how far I've come, how much I've grown, how I'm not striving for that perfection anymore. I'm striving to do a good job, but I also want to have a good life. And I want my son to have a good life and I want to have a good marriage. And all of those things matter to me too. So I think that's like you talked about sort of work-life balance. I think it's sort of more like work-life calibration and integration that I constantly have to calibrate to myself whenever I'm in a stretchy phase and doing something exciting in my business, then I have to calibrate to myself, is this, is this helpful for you? Is this, is this what's going to help you thrive and feel okay as a human being and not just in your career as a psychologist? Yeah, that sounds really valuable because I think quite a lot of us, and I certainly have this too, we've got this part of our brain that can always see the next thing to do professionally. It can always see, oh, the business could be better if I do this, or, you know, oh, I could serve people better if I offer this. And sometimes it is about sort of quietening that part of the mind slightly so that you can tune into the other part that is saying, I need rest. I need to make time to eat lunch every day. Yeah. <laughs> um, Yeah, all of those kind of self-care things, which are so difficult to slot in when you've got this ambitious, driven part of you, um, which can be so loud. Yeah, and that's why I often talk about how it's okay to follow your ambition, but not drown in it. 
Because if you're drowning in it, that means you don't have the capacity to serve anymore. You're actually drifting further away from the values you might have as a psychologist of being thoughtful, kind, you know, efficient, effective, whatever it is you want to be. Actually, when you are burnt out, when you are running really low, running on empty in terms of your energy levels, you're not going to show up as the best version of you, the version of you that you want to be as a psychologist. So that's why you have to keep calibrating that. How do I talk myself up so that I can continue to pour in the glasses of others? I mean, that's that's true for, for us as parents, as well as a psychologist. Anything that is to do with your caregiving capacity for others, you have to keep calibrating that so you also can do the caregiving for yourself. Yeah, absolutely. And I think on the podcast episode, one of the things which really resonated with people was how we talked about how that concept needs to be applied to your fees. And if you charge fees that mean you have to see somebody on the hour, every hour, all through the day, Hmm. you're not able to fill up your own cup enough um, to serve those people particularly well. Um, or to sort of live the values that you want to live. And that's a huge part of um, the teaching in, around pricing in psychology business school. It's like, don't just think about what you can do physically, what you can manage. You've mm. got to plan to have that space in your practice that enables you actually to be worth any fee. Because <laughs> you, you know that I've made the mistakes. I think I shared that with you before. I, I went mm. in really low when I started my practice. Um, and to be honest, there came a point where I was so burnt out, I'm not sure I was even worth the pittance that I was charging. Mm. Whereas as soon as I doubled my fees um, and made more space in my day, I knew I was worth the, the bigger fee that I now charge because I'm, I'm reading about you. I'm thinking about you. I'm you know, really giving so much more to my clients now. Yeah, I think it's such an important thing to remember. It really is. And it's, it's partly acting with self-worth, knowing that the transformation that we can offer, the value we can bring to our clients. And as clinical psychologists, we really struggle with that. But obviously, people who are in coaching might be finding that easier. Uh, but obviously, I can only speak for clinics. I am a clinic psych, but I, I know it's a similar thing with counselling psychologists and, and CBT therapists, etc. So people who are in this caregiving capacity where we've been trained to, to serve uh, others, then we really have to step out of this idea that the only way I can serve others is with the one-to-one work uh, on an hourly race, the, you know, rate basis. So I now charge about double what I, what I charged when I first set out. And I do get a lot of uh, kickback around that. I do get some criticism around why I charge what I charge. But I don't have to explain my rates to other people. I know the mission I'm on. I know what I'm aiming to do uh, to, ser- to better serve the, the general public. And part of that is that when I can step away from just doing the one-to-one work, and I think I shared that to you before, that I actually don't do that many one-to-one hours uh, sessions a week. I do about eight to 10 client sessions a week for the four days that I work. Uh, That means that I can do other things like run my podcast, like run a Facebook group, like put out free resources, like write a book, and also create an online course, which I can then gift away for free to people who are needing it or, or a heavily reduced basis. Cause we also know that when you do put some money towards something, you're more likely to engage with them psychologically speaking. That's what we really want. We want people to complete courses. So I can give away a course for 10% of the, of the, the, the price to someone who's on benefits, for instance, I cannot give away an hour with me of 10% of the hourly rate. I can't. Cause if I did that, I wouldn't be able to pay my mortgage and pay for my child's nursery fees and things like that, that actually do cost money. 
and pay for my own self-care to be able to have few enough sessions in the week so that I can have a lunch break I can work on the business and not just in the business so that's the that's the lesson I've been learning for over years through through business coaching through you know mentorship through my own kind of compassion journey that actually I need to work in this way because there are lots of things I want to do and give away for free and I needed to be able to make enough money so that I could set aside the time to build those free resources and some of these free free resources um free resources are actually aren't free for me to do it's costing me about 400 pounds a month to put out my podcast that's not free that's a cost to me right so I need to finance that some somehow and the podcast I'm getting so much resonance from clients saying that you know I've sent that to my friend and she's now sought out help etc etc so you're reaching people way wider way further than you would do with just saying I can see you one to one lots of people aren't ready for that yet we know that kind of pre-contemplative stage where they're not ready to take action and I've had people saying I've been listening to your podcast for months and now I felt safe enough to work with you individually because I feel like I know you now and I feel like you would understand my problems so that's the bit that I think really encouraging people to to think beyond just the one-to-one Yeah, I completely agree with you. And essentially, that is a social enterprise model, whether you don't have to have a specific legal structure to be a social enterprise. If you're doing things like that, you know, you're taking some of your profit and investing it in reaching people that couldn't afford to pay your fees, then you are acting as a social enterprise. And I think there are, I hope anyway, that there'll be people watching or listening to this that realize that actually that's that's what they're aiming for too. And that it's okay to charge a bit more for people that can afford to pay it in order to make those things a reality. Because you cannot do it if you're working every hour under the sun, client facing, you just can't. You can't. And I think, you know, this is a question I get a lot. Um, so obviously running this community and psychology business school and the podcast, people are often like, how do you fit it all in? But very similar to you, I don't have many clients anymore. Mm. Um, and that's how I make the space in the week. Mm. Um, but it would not be possible if I was charging what I was charging a couple of years ago. It really wouldn't be possible. No. Um, and that's the thing that we're not superhuman. Like coming back to some of the feedback you've had around my podcast episode. No, I'm not different to you. I'm not exceptional. I'm not superhuman. No, I don't work evenings and weekends. And that's the route to my success. I'm going to quote one of my podcast guests, uh, Mandy Leto, who's a who's a, an executive coach. And she's very openly talking about her experience of burnout. And she often says that you've achieved the things in your life despite you're overachieving despite your perfectionism not thanks to it that you got there in the end but that's costing you an arm and a leg it's the burnout that you've paid as a price so I I guess that's the bit I'm trying to say to people that yes you're going to be successful if you strive for excellence and you're less likely to be successful if you strive for perfectionism because a you don't get started and b you don't finish that's the biggest issue I had when I was much more keen to get things right years back that I just overthought things for ages and ages and ages and then if you overthink you don't put things out there and there's a quote by by uh, Risky that I often talk about that it's not as relevant to UK people because you're not into ice hockey but he's a Canadian ice hockey player who says um, you miss a hundred percent of the shots that you don't take and that's a really powerful powerful one for me if I don't take a shot at it 
then I will definitely fail. If I take a shot at it, I might fail, but I could have succeed. So you, you can't hold yourself back anymore just to say, well, what if it's not perfect? What if people are going to judge it? What if they're going to think I'm not professional enough or good enough and all that imposter stuff? Because then you will definitely not get anywhere because you've not tried it. So that's what I allow myself to do much more now. I'm just like, you know, sort it, I'm going to try it and put it out there and see what happens. Uh, and that's the bit that's steering away from perfectionism, which is more about trying to have it all, like all the ducks in a row before you go ahead. And that's just not helpful for business. You need to allow yourself the creativity to experiment, to try and then tolerate the failure that might come from that. That sounds like the key indicator of when you've strayed into perfectionism and kind of unrealistically high standards. It's when it's actually stopping you from moving even a pace forward. Yeah. I think we all, everybody listening to this or watching it will resonate with that. We've all done that. Um, and actually, the one that most um, members of Psychology Business School or the Do More Than Therapy membership talk to me about as the, the one they stumble over and never get started on is the book. <laughs> mm -hmm. A lot of us feel we've got a book in us that never managed to take that step forward. So can we talk a little bit about your journey with that? Like, How did you take that first step? Sure. I mean, I think this comes back into ambition and drive and, and purpose as well. That You know, I've always wanted to be an author. So you have to really think about why would I want to write this book? If you think, oh, I don't really like writing, but it seems to be the done thing. Other people are doing it and I see that working for them. That's probably not the best way in because it's a lot of hard work. You don't get paid very much um, unless you sell a lot of books. I mean, I get paid around 50p per book or something. Uh, and that's after you've earned out your advance. So you have to have a self-motivation to this. This needs to feel like something you want to do. You, you do need to enjoy playing around with words to some extent, otherwise it's gonna feel excruciating to put it down on the page and then also going through the editing process of tweaking it, making it better. So for me personally, it was, it's been a lifelong dream to, to be an author. I just never pictured that it would, it would be a non-fiction book first. I've always written sort of short stories and uh, kind of, things for my drawer um I even won sort of a, a competition once when I was a teenager and I won, won a bunch of sweets for uh, or I came third actually so I didn't win so I came third in a competition not that it matters but I got a, a whole pile of sweetie bags as, as a prize so that's a very <laughs> proud achievement of mine so I always thought that I was going to write a book at some point and the joy of writing a non-fiction book when you also like writing fiction meant that I gave myself the freedom to play around with the words, to write it as I would speak to clients in the room. I was very clear on my voice before I started of how I wanted to sound, how I didn't want to sound. Uh, so having good examples in your mind of books that you found helpful, the things that you liked and the things that you don't want to have as an example. So kind of almost like any good marketing, you can dare to to repel and alienate the people you don't want to read your book and then really speak to the people who you do want to read your book. That is such an important point because I think that's helpful in two ways because it makes me think when when I personally struggle with getting started with something either because of imposter syndrome that's often the thing for me or or this sort of perfectionist voice in my head then it's imagining the person I'm trying to help sat in front of me and imagining sort of speaking it to them, whether it's, you know, a podcast or whether it's um, a blog post I'm writing or so something I'm working on. If I imagine what do I want to communicate to that person, that's what tends to like push me over the edge to kind of get started with it. Mm. 
but I also because think you probably could have a conversation about, with that person in your sleep yeah yeah exactly and and that's also kind of the same point as you know that will repel some people because you're you can't take this I think we all used to try and do this actually where you try and take a voice which almost talks to everybody we're trying to be accessible and uh, friendly to everyone when actually you know that people need to see themselves in what you're doing and they need to feel like you're talking just to them mm. in order to just break through all the noise of all the stuff that's out there at the moment absolutely it's a really powerful marketing message definitely something we need to take on board well it's a classic thing that's very similar to when you write you know a blog post or a social media post or you know, anything where you're trying to speak to your other client that if when you try to speak to everyone you end up speaking to no one and no one is going to feel that they recognize themselves in the way you're describing the pain points so for me it was a big journey of really trying to get crystal clear on who did I want to pick this book up and and who did I want to not do that who did I want to just say that actually not for me and that's okay. You know, people pick up the, the book, they look at the back cover, they flick through the sort of the chapter overview. If they go, nah, not for me, that's okay. I needed to alienate those people quickly so that they won't buy a 12 pound book, whatever, leave a nasty review on Amazon because it wasn't for them. And that's okay. I'd rather they thought, actually, no, not, that, not for me. I'll pick another couple's book that has, I don't know, pictures or um, pick, pick one that's thinner or giving me kind of a quicker resolution. That's fine. I was very clear that I didn't want my book to be a quick fix, that it, this is something you thoroughly have to work through. So that will alienate people who don't understand that good relationships take actually good effort. And mm -hmm. consistently over time, if you want longevity in your relationship, you're going to have to consistently do that over time. Mm. I'm like I'm soaking all of this stuff in because I, I'm thinking about writing a book uh, for psychologists and therapists actually um, at the moment and really grappling with that idea of kind of what do I want it to do for people and what do I not want it to do and yeah it's uh, it's a tough tough conversation to have with yourself but so worth spending that time up front yeah yeah and it's been something that's been a huge learning point for me personally I kind of say very openly that writing this book has felt like doing two years of personal therapy because there's so many things you work through as part of that. And I will be, I guess, watch this space because I will be doing some workshops for psychologists around book writing and how you can sit with some of that imposter syndrome stuff, how you can go through that process without burning out and just some of the sort of tools of the trade and the tricks I've learned along the way. It doesn't mean I'm by no means an expert. So it would only be from my point of view, how I then marry that together with everything I know about perfectionism and compassion and that doing this in a way so that it doesn't become the things I got sort of warned off around book writing was like you'll you'll regret it you'll hate it you'll be spending every evening like burning the candle at both ends so, so I thought no actually I won't do that I'll make space for this book and I've thoroughly talked about it with my husband we, you know as I was in a kind of book proposal stage like how do we make space for it how do we you know how do we support me around this and there's been a couple locations where it's been more stretchy where we then sat down and talked saying actually I could really do with going away for a weekend when I love this actually I miss this last year beginning of last year I was kind of doing the end final sort of um writing of the of the book sort of February January February 2020 just before we were all getting into lockdown I went away to the hotel where we got married 
and I spent a weekend there just writing, going to the swimming pool, having breakfast in bed. And when you've got a three-year-old, that was just fantastic on so many levels to get to go away for the weekend. So, but again, that came back to negotiation. How would that impact on my husband? Could he get something else? He get he went away for a hiking trip after that instead. Like it's all give and take, so that the book did not feel like a strain and a stretch on our marriage, because that was pretty. That would be pretty hypocritical if I write a book about <laughs> compassionate relationships and I'm sort of killing my own one in the process of the book writing. So I just had to really make sure that that was in line with my values. I set the intention clearly before I started writing and we kept calibrating, kept coming back to how is this working for us? How are you feeling about it? What do we need to give more of or take, take things away? If that makes sense. I love how non-negotiable that was to you that it's like you know there's all these unhelpful discourses out there I get it all the time like oh you're running a business with two small children that must be burnout central or like you know the hustle kind of mentality that people yeah. ram down your throat really and um, I'm like actually I don't run my business like that and I, I don't work <laughs> late at night and you know other than during lockdown one when that was the only time um but I really don't work long hours and I don't really work weekends um and I don't know, sometimes people either don't believe that or are a little bit kind of snippy about it. Yeah. Um, but actually, it is possible so long as you put those boundaries in. It just sounds like you're so good at that. I feel like I can learn a lot. Well, it's, it's come it's come over years and years. And obviously, I've had a lot of help from Wendy Kendall, who's been my business coach through through the sort of first year of me getting business coaching. I had really massive support from her. And that's helped me. A, up my rates, B, know my worth, C, understand my niche, D, trust to put things out there and, you know, and under a brand I felt comfortable with. So all of that has been stuff that's been chipped away at over years through mm -hmm. the use of paying for, for coaches who actually were that much in front of me, had that much more experience and could explain to me this is what the journey could look like and how fulfilled you could feel if you were building a psychology practice that serves you and not just serving the people who you got in front of you. So it has definitely been kind of an ongoing calibration. And it's not like I'd never get that wrong. But I, like I said, in our podcast, I've experienced burnout before when I was working in IAPT. And I just, I was just not going to have that happen when I was working for myself. So I'd rather than take less income and I, and I do get you know consistently good income per month it's not that I don't but I could make more I could double the amount of clients I see a month but it wouldn't be the practice I wanted to, to run so mm. I have a comfortable lifestyle from the, the the income I make and that's again that's been something I've had to really challenge like my money mindset around this moving towards more have a kind of more of an abundant rather than a scarcity mindset that I don't mm have to constantly feel like I'm strapped for cash or be worrying about taking a day off or, or giving myself a sick day if I'm not well enough to work. So all of those things have been, like you say, non-negotiables because they're about protecting my well-being. And my well-being, now that I'm a mother, that's that's around the time where I left the NHS, where I left IAP because when I came back from that leave, I realized I can't work like this. It's just not, not negotiable for me when I had a child who you know, had severe allergies and I was constantly worried about that next call from nursery that, oh, he's had a reaction and feeling like I cannot just go. So now I work from home. I can be at nursery in five minutes. Not that I'm worried on a daily basis about his allergies, but it's just, it's just portrayed to me that life was more than just serving someone else's caseload. And now I call my own shots. Um, so I find that a, a much more sustainable way of living for me. And like you're saying, no, I don't, 
I don't think that that hustle culture is particularly helpful, thinking that if you're a business owner, that is what you're doing. You have to build in the the CEO stuff. I have every Friday is my CEO Friday. So now we're having a chat with this, but normally I, I only do stuff where I'm building things in the business. It's my CEO day. I'm CEO. So CEO can't just do one-to-one therapy. That's They need to do leadership stuff. They need to do the admin stuff and delegating stuff, the visionary stuff where they're talking to their staff about what's the strategy, what's the next step that what we're going to be building. So that's what, you know, I've just had a conversation with my web developer and then I'm having a conversation with my online business manager. So a big thing that we haven't talked about yet of how we build sustainable practices is also having the right support around you. You cannot be a jack of all trades. You cannot do it all. You can't be you know, a pro at the finances and the website building and the social media and all that. Just We're, we're trained to be pros at treating people's distress. So that's what we should be doing. Everything else we can outsource. Yes, I couldn't agree more. I mean, this is something I bang on about all the time. The psychology business school students watching this are probably like, ah, oh. <laughs> this is literally what I spent all of our time talking about. Um, because if you are trying to do all of that, then you start to feel de-skilled and you start to feel like you're not worth your fees because you're so frequently spending your time doing stuff that is not to use an overused phrase but your zone of genius mm-hmm. and it really erodes your self-esteem actually and even if you are good at it is like so for me this was podcast editing I quite liked editing my own podcast because it's safe work you know it's mm. work which I can do and I just get to sit in my introvert cave and I don't really have to like, go out and, and do anything frightening if I'm doing it editing a podcast but you know ultimately my values are telling me that what I should be doing is kind of getting out and networking and spreading the word about what I'm doing rather than sitting in my introvert cave. Um, So actually getting someone else outsourcing the editing of my podcast, which I believe you advised me to do last time we spoke, (laughs) um, has, has freed up that space. I've now got an extra couple of hours a week that I can spend being forward facing and spreading Mm. messages that are helpful to more people. So there's so it's many- also a nice way to also make your psychology business feel less lonely. I mean, I've been having my podcast editor with me since August and she's fantastic. When my book came out, she sent me the most amazing Kit Kat bouquet. That's literally a bouquet full of Kit Kats instead of flowers oh, because she obviously listens to every single word I say on the podcast and knew that one of the things I'd been doing to kind of cope with the first lockdown was to eat far too many Kit Kats. So then it's like, it's not just the support of taking a task off me that she can do far better than I can. She's got a background in, in, you know, music, media and film stuff. So she can kind of work audio magic in a way that I can't. It's also that I can then just pass it on and I know that it's going to be done. And it's another person on my team. It's another person I can drop an email and have a chat with and who will send me something lovely and I can send something lovely to her for Christmas, etc. So you have people on your team and that can be really nice when we're quite often lonely in private practice. Absolutely. Yeah, I think a lot of people um, watching or listening to this will know Sam, our community manager. Um, you know, Sam is a member of my team who I speak to every day and it feels so much more welcoming going to work and knowing that they're is someone else around you know even if it's virtual and yeah I've got a few team members that do different things for me and it it really does feel very different to those days when it was just me at the top of an old Victorian house (laughs) 
very different now, isn't it? But I guess that's one of those things that can feel really scary. Guess again, coming back to money mindset of if you are scaling your business, it can feel really scary to put money into these expensive things like or getting a VA or getting a podcast editor or someone to do your social media or whatever it might be, or that feels really stretchy, can I afford it, but actually can you afford to get burnt out? That's expensive. Um, yeah. Taking time off work for months because you're, you've hit the wall, that's expensive. So, and can you afford to leave all this money on the table where people are coming your way and you just don't have the capacity to deal with them all? Um, and that's something I'm dealing with at the moment and trying to sort of find better ways of creating a good client journey, kind of a, a customer customer journey for people coming in and having my, my new team sort of dealing with that and making sure that every single person who comes my way feels really welcomed uh, with the same compassionate ethos and rather than me sort of feeling like, oh crap, I've not dealt with my emails for a few days and that person has not had a response. So that's, I think that's one of the things that we have to think about. What does this feel like for someone who's potentially in distress coming this way? I've been sitting on this decision for months to reach out for help and then they reach out and you just don't have the space to deal with your emails and then they don't get a reply for three days. I mean, how would you feel if you did that? You plucked up the courage to reach out and then someone says, sorry, I'm behind on my emails. Whereas they got a response from someone straight away, you know, we can always do these template emails where you as the visionary write these things and the, the VA person just populates it with some extra bits. And that's every single NHS service is run with administrators and receptionists doing that first client facing part of the journey. But in private practice, we think that we shouldn't. It's just me. But no other service does that. Yeah, I completely agree. And actually, the feedback that I've had, because I've obviously done it both ways, um, the feedback that I've had is that since I've been using my assistant, Anna, to do that side of things for me, people feel much more contained and like they're coming into a more professional service. Hmm. Um, also, the benefit, if anybody um, watching or listening to this is like me, if you're one of those people that tend to say yes when you should say no, um, then you can set your vision for what your boundaries need to be when you want to work your clinic hours and when you're not going to be doing clinic hours. And the beauty is your assistant will stick to that when you wouldn't. Yes. <laughs> and so this is another reason that I really rely on Anna in my team, because if you come to me and ask for an appointment, I'll probably try and squeeze you in. And that's not good for me. <laughs> Whereas Anna will look for when I'm actually available <laughs> and yeah. offer that appointment. And I haven't really lost. I don't think I've lost anybody as a result of that um, journey. No, and it's really, really helpful. It can help you have tricky conversations as well. You know, my online business manager helped me look at strategy and and have some tough conversations with my previous uh, web developer, like what package is Michaela currently on? How much is she paying? How much, what's the usage for that? All of these difficult conversations that I didn't feel like doing, but she was like, oh, I'm just compiling a financial report for Michaela's uh, expenditure. So I need to know these things ASAP. And she then wrote like three, four emails to follow it up. And like all of these things that are really helpful that when you have someone else fighting your corner, you can then focus your energy on the things that you're really good at. Like you said earlier, sort of your zone of genius of letting you shine with the clinical work if you are, you know, if you do therapy, for instance. But whatever it is that you do, it might be medical legal reports. So whatever so you do, you, that's the bit that your online business manager, your VA or your podcast editor can't do. So let them do what they're really good at so you can do the bits that you got at. Whereas for me, writing a medical legal report sounds like the worst version of hell. So I would never do that. <laughs> so that's why I never go into that um, that industry. So you need to really know the things that you like to do and uh, sticking with those things, the things that fulfill you and just leaving the other bits. 
Absolutely. Um, so actually, picking up on a question that's come in, um, somebody, I can't see who it is because StreamYard doesn't show me, but somebody's asking, would examples of outsourcing be things like admin, web design, systems for calendars and booking? I think those are great examples. But you also mentioned an online business manager. I've not heard of that. What's that role? So this is this is this is some absolutely amazing. And that's something one of my business coaches uh, recommended me to have. Uh, and an online business manager is like a step up from a VA. So they look at strategy. They look at the overarching aims you have, your visions. They can look at that from kind of quarter to quarter and help you get to those long-term goals by taking a step back and see what needs to be implemented. So the, the, what I like about my online business manager is that what she had me at was when she said I will be your Monica for your business so like Monica from Friends whereas <laughs> I like to think that I'm organized and structured but I'm really not I'm much more the visionary and kind of coming up with creative ideas then going to my online business manager she would then look at this is how you implement that because you don't have to reinvent the wheel she has multiple clients who've done similar things and might be ahead of me in the journey that I want to walk so she might then say have you thought about creating this sort of podcast page instead or helping me with sort of marketing funnels and things like that. So it's, it's, I guess, at some point in your business, for me, especially where I am now, I don't want to do any more courses when I'm learning this. I just need someone to help me implement it. So I've, I've spent lots of money on really helpful courses with digital marketing strategists, people who help me understand marketing funnels. And now having an online business manager helps me to put that into action by delegating that either to the VA that she has working with her or the um, web developer who now does stuff to my website. So, so that's really, really helpful of what that is. I've only just discovered that there's lots of comments that I didn't see uh, beforehand. It, it'd be so lovely if people um, give the um, permission for, um, what's it called, uh, StreamYard, to actually see who we are, because I've got lots of comments from Facebook users saying, hello, 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 and I don't know who you are, and I bet they'll actually <laughs> yeah. know who you are if we had your names. There should so, be a link that you can click at the top, which gives StreamYard permission. So yes, if, if you can see that link, click it, and then we should be able to see who you are and say hi, which would be really so nice. So feel free to ask questions as, as you go along, because it's really helpful to make it interactive. Yes, it would be really good to know what people are, are thinking. Um, lots of positive comments so far, which does not surprise me at all. Um, one thing I wanted to ask you about today, which was the bit actually that we didn't really get to talk about on our podcast episode. Um, we talked lots about the process of writing in that episode and sort of getting the book to that point of feeling like it's finished, the baby is ready to be let out. <laughs> um, but we didn't really talk about the marketing plan and what you've done to get your book into the world. And I, I happen to know um, from stalking that you've done some pretty impressive things. So would you mind um, sharing with us a bit of your marketing strategy? Uh, what impressive things have I done in terms of my marketing strategy? <coughs> wow, I'm actually, I'm really impressed by your podcast guesting strategy. Because um, I know that you had quite a high profile gig there. I did. Am I allowed to mention who that was with? I don't know, are you? Yeah, well, <laughs> from, from, yeah, absolutely. From their point of view, that's just spreading the word. So yeah, I did a, I, I did a, a podcast interview with Deliciously Ella, which has had um, 15 million downloads, I think. So podcast guesting is a great strategy for visibility for psychologists, because once you overcome the imposter stuff saying that I don't know enough about the subject, 
we are actually experts on our field and owning that expertise and stepping out in the public eye means that we can actually address some of these preconceived notions and myths that exist about mental health, for instance, and talk about what we know is true from the research and our clinical experience. So I had to sort of think, similar to what you said earlier, that you have to throw your hat in the ring, you have to get out there in the arena. Otherwise, you will be someone who's just looking at all those other people doing it. But if you're not getting into the arena, you actually can't really say anything about that. So that came out of me just sending her a direct message on Instagram literally that and I pointed to someone who I knew that she's she's had on her podcast before or an acquaintance of mine and I I just gave her a couple of compliments for things I enjoyed about her podcast and then said I've got my book out it's about this may I send it to you and she said yeah drop me an email and she then gave me her address and I sent her a podcast interview I'd done on another podcast where I was talking about compassion and relationships and she said I'm listening to this now loving it can I have you on the podcast as a guest so all of that stems from your own mindset. If you are thinking, I'm not good enough, I'm not able to do this, other people are better experts, you're not going to put your hat and throw your hat in the ring. So all I had to do is to believe that I know more than she does to feel like I can qualify as a guest, right? Mm. So you only have to have more expertise than the general public you're talking to. And we all do have more expertise than the general public we're talking to. That does not mean that I think I'm the top expert on relationships or do I ever think that I can be Esther Perel because I can't Esther Perel is taken I can be I can be me but I can't be Esther Perel so I think that's that's helpful of how if you want to grow your visibility and increase your chances of say getting a um, a book deal that is then taking that step and saying actually I can speak about this that and the other thing on your podcast would you be interested and showing examples of have you spoken to other people so the, the first podcast guesting might be the hardest one, but once you have a few um, under your belt, it's almost like you can add them to your CV, then you have examples of you speaking and can send it out to other people. And that, uh, I'm just seeing a comment here. It said 15 million downloads, not 50 million downloads. Um, so <laughs> 15 is still impressive. Um, but I do think kind of something else that's really important to draw out there that you mentioned is that you had something to give straight away you had content that you could point people to to say look yeah. I've demonstrated my expertise in this free content that you can access and, and see and I think that's where people sometimes stumble so you do have to you know write those blog posts um, you know come and be on a podcast the business of psychology actually is a, is a great example of a good first podcast for quite a lot of people to come and tell their story mm. then you know people who've been on that I know that they have used those episodes as examples of their speaking ability their communication ability when you're pitching to somebody else I think it that's the that's the, the stumbling block I see people um, fall down on sometimes that mm. yes you do need to have the mindset that you are um, good enough and expert enough to pitch yourself. But you, I think you do also need to have somewhere to send um, yeah. the person so that they can check you out and check out your content. And that's why it's really helpful to start really small. I mean, I often talk about that, that if you want to dream big, you have to start small. And that can be difficult when you kind of get perfectionistic about these things, thinking, 
oh, but that podcast doesn't have much reach or it's a really new podcast. Actually, starting small is really great because it's like the first pancake. You can tolerate that that first pancake is a little bit paler than it should be and it's not as great and you have to calibrate the, the level of heat. This is an actual scientific thing um, that I spent some research on two years ago for pancake day. So yeah, <laughs> the first pancake is an actual thing and I use it a lot in, in work around perfectionism that actually allow yourself the first to be a little bit shitty and then you've learned from it. Whereas if I pitched myself up to Deliciously Ella as my first podcast, it would have been too stretchy. It would have been too difficult. Whereas when you're going on a big podcast, you're expected to deliver sound bites. You're expected to be able to speak without going, ah, uh, 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 the whole time. So I used some smaller um, interviews as a way to practice my speaking engagements and learn from it, listening back to it. Again, self-corrective, not self-critical. And think, what could I have done more of? Can I? How can I control the interview? So now I've learned so much about what questions I want to have. I I have the assertiveness to say, no, that's not a question I'm uh, prepared to answer, or that's not within my expertise. Some of that has just come from doing it. So practicing gives progress, uh, as we often talk about in perfectionism work. So it's not about thinking that you're going to go out there and deliver this thing that you've heard another psychologist do on a podcast. You've got people like Dr. Soph. Um, there's lots of really good psychologists out in the media who you think they sound so ace and you're wondering how many pancakes did they fry before they came to this one so I think you really have to consider allowing yourself the learning curve to grow to reflect to tweak and then eventually you get the heat right and you're going to make some wicked pancakes <laughs> I love that analogy um, I don't know what's wrong with me though my first pancake is always the burnt one I always get <laughs> high for the first too one. intense Go yeah. in with lower expectations and then you might not burn it. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, so it sounds like the podcast um, outreach strategy was a useful one. Is there anything else that you did to create buzz around the book? Mm, I mean, there's, there's a lot of things here. That I'm, trying, I'm trying to hold back a little bit because I'm going to bring it into my uh, workshop around book writing. But yeah, I think there's, there's a lot of stuff that you can do around creating a buzz in terms of having a platform. So for books to be successful, it's all about platform. You can write the most amazing book and agonize over it for 10 years. And then once you finally get it out there, uh, you probably shouldn't agonize over it for 10 years because the, the content might not be as topical. But even if you've sort of gone through the editing and it's a brilliant book and then no, you don't know enough people. So how are you going to get the bus out and around it? And there's, there's a bigger sort of picture to this, which is around sort of Amazon ranking and algorithms and getting enough sales in and within a particular time frame. So things like pre-orders, uh, you know, coming up the, uh, the sales rankings and getting bestseller uh, rankings, reviews on Amazon. There's a lot of stuff there that you just can't know <laughs> until you know them. So you have to learn how this works and the business of book writing. And for me, again, I'm going to come back to coaching. I paid for a book coach. So I probably paid, I probably spent about half of my advance of this book on my book coach. But that made the process way smoother. Again, a lot less risk of burnout. Any stumbling blocks, I could turn to her and talk it through. So that's not a psychologist. That's someone who's in publishing, who, who understands the process of book writing and can help me with any mind gremlins that were showing up along the way. Um, so that's been hugely important, understanding the different parts of the book writing process and helping helping me of how to book launch your business, essentially. Um, I know she does courses and things like that for, for people who want to write a book and, and use it as a way to to uh, 
kind of expand your business as well because again like I said you don't get much money from the actual book it's about the doors that that book will open for you yes I think that's really interesting and I think uh, one of the key messages from today has been about you know recognizing when getting somebody alongside you like a coach um, at the right moment can I think it not only helps you to structure what you're doing and helps your thinking, but it also confronts you with an example of success. And you realize that 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 human in front of you has achieved what you're what you're striving towards. I think when people are looking for coaches, one of the things that I often um, say is, you know, look for the person that has something that you want you know, whether that, you know, you really admire what they've done professionally. Um, I know you talked about Wendy, and that would be a great example of that. that you know, you look at the yeah. way that she works and think, you know, she's got it. That's something that I would I would like to work that way, too. Um, and I know that um, when I offer coaching, it's often people who want to do online courses. They want to do something um, really different alongside their therapy work. And that's why they would come to me for that. And I think yeah. it's the same with a book coach. You know, you want somebody who who knows how to make a book successful and has lived it um, because that it not only gives you coaching, it also gives you that like shining light, if you like, of like, oh yeah, it can be done. I don't have to. It's possible. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Absolutely. And I think you have to find a coach that fits for where you're looking to go. Uh, I mean, the, 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 the kind of bit that really resonates with me around sort of finding the support along the, the road with you is what Wendy talks about around how, if you want to go, fast go alone if you want to go far go with others and I I keep coming back to that slogan when I resist choosing another team member or resist delegating all of these things that are old kind of schemas for me as a perfectionist I have to do all my myself actually you know if I want to go further I have to delegate it to other people who can support me so that's been hugely important and for when you're choosing a business coach, because I'm, I'm seeing there's a comment here around that of how do you find someone who understands psychology? Well, actually choosing a psychologist is not a bad idea or someone who's in uh, in a similar field, for instance, and helping you to then uh, get someone who understands ethical marketing and the boundaries that we have as psychologists compared to, um, say, maybe coaches. But there are obviously a lot more regulations around coaching now than there used to be as well. So for me personally you know one of the business coaches I've worked with I I literally just saw that she was going to start doing business coaching so I thought actually if I pay her a thousand pounds it's going to give me six coaching sessions I'm going to be on her radar and then she invited me onto a podcast that has over a million downloads so not as big as Ella's but going on the Chloe Brotheridge podcast was still a hugely important learning point because that she was my coach so I knew she was going to give me a fair representation of my book she was going to be there to let me shine and she's been so helpful in showing me how I can do these things because she's already doing it she's a successful author runs these online business um in the online business model that I want to follow of helping people um overcome some of their fears and anxieties and does so in a very ethical way she just provides different types of strategies to me she does hypnotherapy I don't I don't do that but that meant that I would know that this is someone who can guide me in an ethical way. So it doesn't have to just be psychologists, but like you, I also provide sort of business coaching and I can only help people with the things that I'm really passionate about. So someone said to me, help me grow my practice of doing medical legal stuff. Like I said earlier, which is not touch it with a parish ball. So I would then happily say, that's not my zone of genius. But if you want to know how to run a podcast, write a book, launch an online course, 
um, you know, find a sustainable way of not burning out and yourself that's the bit I'm really passionate about so at some point or another I'm going to build a membership for psychologists who want to do that you know following their ambition without drowning in and really having the the burnout aspect built into that so that we are kinder to ourselves the way we are kind to our clients yeah and I think that kind of it does come into that abundance mindset thing that you were talking about I mean in case people haven't heard that term before Um, An abundance mindset is where you come from the perspective of knowing that there's enough, there's enough of everything for everybody. Mm -hmm. Um, And you having something doesn't mean that somebody else doesn't get something, or that's the way that I perceive it anyway. Whereas the scarcity mindset is that, you know, that feeling you get um, when you start out in private practice and you find somebody more qualified than you and they, and they live down the road and you're like, ah, God, I'm never going to get any clients because they're going to take them all. Um, And I think we all start like that. I think it's really unusual to start in business and not feel like that. I certainly felt strongly like that. Um, But actually, when you move into this place of like, oh, actually, there is more than enough work out there for everybody. It's kind of sad in mental health, actually, that this is true, but it certainly is. There's more than enough clients for every person in private practice. Um, Then you can build collaborations. Then you can sort of raise each other up. And if you raise the whole industry up, that's good for everybody and you can all prosper. It really is because that means that we're all helping each other raise those rates to be good market value rates. Uh, you know, a big part that I'm passionate about is trying to face out insurance companies. It's been kind of big sort of self-care strategy for me of not working with AXA, for instance, not to blame and shame them horribly, but they're just, it's just not worth my time. So I think you're right in that sense of having that abundance mindset helps us to collaborate. And that's that's one of the things that I was referred to within Wendy's group as the collaboration queen, because I didn't do it as a strategy. I just like talking to people. And that's hence why my brand is the Thomas Connection. I like connecting with people. And that coming back to your question around marketing strategy around the book, those years of collaborations I did on Instagram, talking to women, meeting up for coffees when we were allowed to do that, mm-hmm. uh, doing all of these things that I did on a pro bono basis for the Nourish app, Modern Motherdom magazine, all of these things I did around perinatal mental health paid off because all of those women who had bigger platforms than I did said, oh, Michaela's written a book. Let me share it. So that's you You can't go into the world thinking I'm going to collaborate with you and talk to you and connect with you because you might scratch my my back back for me. It's not that. It's not a tit for tat kind of reciprocal kind of score sheet. It's more about connecting with people who are like minded, who you, you, you support their business idea and they support yours and you like to have good chats with them. Again, that's how I felt like. I was less lonely in private practice because I could talk to whoever I wanted and have coffees and collaborate with people I liked from Instagram. Whereas when I was working in the NHS, you, you were kind of stuck with the teammates you had. <laughs> I didn't get to recruit them, unfortunately. Uh, so that means that it's a lot easier to find a dynamic that works well for you. And all of those things I then did for free over years finally paid off. So I hope that makes sense to people that it's there is so much work out there for us, more than we can actually even meet. So that means that we can where we can collaborate to come up with these ideas. We don't have to compete. And that, that's probably the, been the saddest thing that I've experienced of private practice of when there is a sense of critical competitiveness around this, around what I charge or who I serve or why don't I serve those people. And that is I just have to, you know, you just take a deep breath, reconnect with what's important to you and just let that slide off because it's just not going to serve you. And that, that's been a huge, huge part of my growth of, 
owning who I want to serve and how I want to do that and tolerating that that is going to spark jealousy or envy or competition in some people. And then I have to think that that speaks louder for them than it speaks for me. Yes, I mean, that's such a good point. And I think, you know, unless we've got any questions um, come through, um, I think that would be a good place for us to round off today. Um, thank you so much, Michaela. I mean, I'm sure I'll probably get you on the podcast again if you <laughs> if you'll take it, um, because you know it's so value packed, and I think that a lot of people will have had a lot of light bulb moments listening to you. So I really appreciate you taking the time, um, and wish you all the success with the book. I know it's going to be successful; it already is. So. Yeah, huge congratulations for that. Thank you very um, much. Would you mind, uh, when this video goes into the group, could you just maybe pop a link to the book? Um, of course. Under it so that people can check it out. I, I think do. a lot of people would want to see what you've been working on. Um, it's going to be on my reading list, that's for sure. I will, and I'm really looking forward to when it's going to be out in bookshops where we can actually go to bookshops because that's one of those moments of success. And obviously you have to define what success is for you. But for me, a lifelong dream of seeing a book in a bookshop I actually got sent a picture on Instagram of this uh, big bookshop in Dubai that has it on its bestseller chart, you know, ahead of things like Glennon Doyle and Philippa Perry. So, yeah, oh, that's, that's, that's success. And I'm like, I wish I could just go to Dubai and hold it in my hand. But oh. maybe, uh, you know, in a couple of months, maybe we'll, we'll be able to go to Waterstones and I'll do book signings and talks and things like that. And it'd be so lovely to connect with other people face to face in person. If you're close to where I am, then it'd be lovely to see people. Yes. Oh, I'm going to be crossing all my fingers and toes that you get to go and see your book in a bestsellers list. That sounds absolutely incredible. Thank you. All right. Um, I will speak to you very soon. Thank you, everybody. Thank you. Before you go, I just wanted to check something out with you because I don't know if this is just me. But do you sometimes wake up at two o'clock in the morning worried that you've made a terrible error that's going to bring professional ruin upon you and disgrace your family? <laughs> I'm laughing now, but when I first set up in private practice, I was completely terrified that I'd miss something really big when I was setting up my insurance or data protection practices. Even now, three years in, I sometimes catch myself wondering if I've really covered all the bases properly. And it's hard, no, actually it's impossible, to think creatively and have the impact you should be having in your practice if you aren't confident that you have a secure business underneath you. But it can be really overwhelming to figure out exactly what you need to prioritise before those clients start coming in. So I've created a free checklist plus resources list to take the thinking out of it. Tick off every box and you can see your clients confident in the knowledge that you have everything in place for your security and theirs. You can download it now from psychologist.drosie.co.uk forward slash client hyphen checklist and the link is in the show notes. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Business of Psychology podcast. If you share my passion for doing more than therapy, then make sure you come over and join my free Do More Than Therapy Facebook community, where you can work on getting your big ideas off the ground with like-minded psychologists and therapists. I'd also love it if you could leave this show a five-star review wherever you listen to your podcasts. It will help more of the people who need it to find it. See you next week for more tips and inspirational stories to help you do more than therapy.